Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Monday, July 19, 2021, and released on Sunday, July 25. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're talking with Roshan Evans, co-founder of an organization known as Pure Justice. Mr. Evans helped spark the idea of creating Pure Justice based on his own experience after being falsely accused of a crime and sent to prison. He found it extremely difficult to get help in his situation. He didn't know what to do or who to turn to in order to get someone to review his case and help get him exonerated. After eventually getting out of the system, he realized that his case was not unique. Not that everyone in prison is innocent, but that African Americans suffer consequences that are overly harsh, draconian, and have effects that last well after the term of the sentences are served. In 2017, Roshan published his first book, Stolen Identity. It explores how African-American males who become victims of the school-to-prison pipeline, even when they have not committed a crime, are faced with a continued stigma that leads to recidivism for rightfully and wrongfully convicted felons. The book also explores how such a stigma leads to an overall deterioration of human dignity due to laws that foster a continuation of societal punishment well beyond prison. Roshan has uh, since written three more books, Domino Effect, Roshan and the Camp Click, and Open Your Mind, Challenging Conventional Thought. He currently serves as the organizing director, inmate liaison, and community outreach coordinator for Peer Justice. When he's not engaged in community activism in the fight against criminal and societal injustices, Roshan is conducting research for his pending books and studying to complete his Bachelor of Arts degree in political science. He intends to go on to law school afterwards. Roshan Evans, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me, Dan. So, you, uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a, a tragic story that ultimately inspired you to create pure justice. Can you fill in some of the details for us? Tell us about your journey and how it's changed you. Uh, yes. Um, so, at the age of 17, um, I was sucked into the system uh, behind a false accusation with inadequate counsel and no support system. And in my young, naive mind, I truly believe that there was nothing anyone can do to me in the court of law as long as I was telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And ultimately, what I found out years later after I was pushed into a plea deal to avoid 15 years in prison was that in the courtroom, you being innocent of a charge is not what lawyers or prosecutors are actually looking for. They're looking for the best story and a win. And I happen to get a backlash and a whiff of a real reality, you know, that I didn't understand at the time when I signed that plea deal turn my world <clears throat> upside down. And what was the, what were the details of, of the plea deal that turned that that um, that unfolded before you? So the details of the plea deal <clears throat> was well my lawyer <clears throat> he told me that um at the time at the age of seventeen that 
nobody care about my story. Nobody care about what happened. Nobody care about what didn't happen. <clears throat> the only thing anybody care about is guilty or innocent. And if I say innocent, I was going to prison for 15 years and I was 17. I couldn't imagine doing 24 hours in a jail. This guy talking about doing my whole life again behind bars. He said, if you say guilty, <clears throat> I can assure that you will walk out of here right now, today, as a free man. All you will get is 36 months probation and six months ankle monitor again behind a situation that never happened, behind a situation that I shouldn't have been in a courtroom for. Nobody cared about a guilty or what actually happened. The only thing anybody cared about was, will you take this deal or not? <clears throat> now, hmm. ultimately, when I took that deal and I got up to that stand and that judge started asking me, guilty or innocent, <laughs> it really mentally broke me down. I did not by no means want to say guilty for something I should not have been in the courtroom for, yet I knew that my lawyer, the guy that was representing me, just told me that if I say anything outside of guilty, then I was going to prison for 15 years and I just couldn't do it. I ended up signing a plea deal you know, thinking that, you know, anything beats 15 years in prison. Right. And yet, you know, it came with a lifelong deal of consequences. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, what happened after you signed the plea deal then? After I signed the plea deal <clears throat> up front in the beginning, you know, I mean, I was still in high school. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, let me bag up. Sure. I'm actually, I was not going to say what the charge was, you mm -hmm. know, but yet I feel that it's important that people actually know. Okay. You know, I did want people to actually go and purchase the book to get, uh, to be able to dig deep into, you know, not only what I'm saying took place at this time in my life, but yet get some of the legal documents, you know, that I put in the book mm -hmm. to, you know, <clears throat> like do their own personal analysis. But at the age of 17, my charge was touching a minor. Now, this touching a minor charge all came from a young lady that was one year and four months younger than me. Now, since she fell in between the ages of 13 and 16, they considered her to be a minor. And since I was over the age of 16 by one year and not living with my mom, they considered me to be an adult. And this girl snuck away from her home and I had no idea that this girl snuck away from her home. Mm -hmm. I just knew she came to hang out. This girl caught a backlash on her way back to her house that ultimately ended up in me catching a charge from an angry parent that had a problem with her daughter disobeying her home rules. And I am the only one that felt the impact of this for 
over half my life. Mm-hmm. Now, when my lawyer told me that I would have to do 36 months probation and six months ankle monitor, he never not once mentioned a sex offender registry. When I got up there to that judge and he put uh, my plea deal into uh, reiteration for me, mm-hmm. he told me that I would have to do these 36 months probation, six months ankle monitor, and then he also added 10 years registration. And he asked my lawyer if he told me that I would have to register as a sex offender. And at the age of 17, I had no idea what registration of a sex offender was. Never right. even heard the term. Right. <clears throat> they put me on this because of a female one year, and four months younger than me snuck out of her home. That wow. we never had sex ever in life. Me and this girl never had sex, never even kissed her. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. But wow. You know, like the whole situation was bad, but my lawyer told me that I would have to tell law enforcement where I live for the next 10 years. He bent down, whispered in my ear. He said, you will have to tell law enforcement where you live for the next 10 years. In my young, naive mind, it still beat going to prison for 15 years. And I couldn't do 15 years in prison. Again, I couldn't see myself doing 24 hours, but I completed my time. I completed my sentence. I did everything I was supposed to do. I actually, you know, should have fulfilled all the requirements that that judge placed me on at the time I was 17. Yet, I am 39 years old and still have not been released from the system. So not released by the system. Does that mean that you are uh, still? Um, I mean, what, you're not on probation anymore, are you? Right. I am not on probation. <clears throat> I am not on parole. I am finished with all of that. But yet, when it comes to the registration that should have been taking place for only ten years, according to my lawyer, oh. we go twenty-one years later, going on to twenty-two years, and they still haven't removed me. Huh. That's interesting. Why, why would they, um, I don't want to you know dive too much into the weeds in this one, but I am curious as to why that hasn't been removed. If the, if the deal was 10 years, why has that not been removed yet? I am curious as well, but when you dig off into, you know, people that has also been placed on the registry, just like myself, I hadn't found anyone that has ever been removed. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but what I am saying is that when it comes to people on the registry, one, they put everybody in the same umbrella, which they should not be in the same umbrella because you actually have people out here committing real crimes. And, And then you have other people that's sitting up here on chat lines at the time, you know, young and they talking to, you know, women that lie about their age and, again, deal with angry parents just like me or, you know, um, all sorts of reasons people, you know, like the system is unjust. And just what people don't understand is that a guilty plea or you signing a plea deal don't actually equate to guilt. (laughs) 
and I signed this plea deal looking for leniency because I feel I have no other shot. And if I don't take this opportunity they given me, then my whole life will be gone. And yet I signed this plea deal and my whole life was gone. I hear these types of issues coming up a lot and it is an unfair system and it's it's uh now you've turned this uh, you've turned this around in a way in your life by co-founding this organization called pure justice and That's right. that that became your your driving force behind pure justice so one of the, uh, if I if I recall correctly, one of the uh, one of the philosophies of pure justice is to, um, um, well, let me go back to this real quick here. Uh, well, I had my notes in front of me. Now I just lost it. Hmm. I think you got yourself into something. I think you got yourself into something you wasn't expecting, and I probably threw you off. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's it's I, I I'm just I I'm I'm just overwhelmed really. I I knew that you had a story uh, like this, but it it just overwhelms me how how uh, as you said in the very beginning, the truth, justice, or the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, will um will essentially set you free, right? I mean that that that's that's uh, but it turns out that's kind of a naive assumption. And really what it turn what it boils down to are the stories. The uh, prosecuting attorney has a story. The defense attorney has a story. And you're caught in the middle without any um, really in a system that you're not even old enough to under, to begin to understand the system. Uh, you, you mentioned before you're 39 years old. I think at this point maybe you can begin understanding how it really works. Um, but for a 17-year-old kid, this is just um, profoundly uh, uh difficult and overwhelming and emotionally charging and and and, um you know at the time you're making the best decision that you knew how to make but it turns out that they kind of anticipated this step to begin with and they um they put you through the system for uh for this and it was just something that really should not have happened in the first place and i guess what i was getting at was um pure justice uh you have basically four different types of uh, goals in pure justice from what i understand there's there's research and policy. There's community outreach workshops, legal awareness, and and uh, and then prison outreach. So how does it, how do you turn this around within pure justice? I mean, th- those four points right there seem to be very pertinent to what you're doing. But how is this going to help uh, the next seventeen year old kid that gets stuck in a situation like this? So I have my own personal problems, just like we all have our little issues that we deal with in life. Now, when it comes to the peer justice organization, we work to bring fairness and equity to the criminal justice system. And we also create economic opportunities for marginalized groups while empowering our members to advocate on their own behalf that come with like local uh, government one-on-one classes or federal uh, government one-on-one classes that show who's in office, the positions they hold, the type of job details that come with each position. So if people want to advocate on their own, they know where to go without uh, getting a runaround. So the whole thing here with pure justice is not to advocate for my problems. It's not to advocate for solely people with issues like mine. The pure justice organization started 
from a piece of what happened to me, but the focus is community focus. So I use my story. I use my books as fundraising to fund a grassroots nonprofit organization to help and assist and deal with the problems that sit in front of them. Mm-hmm. So everything we do in our organization, we bring the community to the forefront. We rally the community together and we talk to the community and we ask them questions and we figure out what's happening in your community that we need to know about. What's happening in your community that impact you a certain way? What's happening in your community that need to be changed? And then we work on bringing a change that our community members need for them to grow. And and what sort of, uh, if I may dive into some specifics here, what sort of changes are you, uh, can you give us some examples of specific changes that uh, you're advocating? Hmm? So let me tell you about some of the things that we are working on right now. And one is juvenile justice reform, which is very big. Uh, as you stated, and as we came on to this program, uh, I was sucked into the system when I was a kid. I am not the only one. Um, but our communities are being tearing, torn apart, you know, with the destruction of our youth, uh, with the criminal justice system. Uh, we are also working on fair housing because people with criminal records face so many barriers when it comes to, you know, just getting a place or maintaining uh, a place to live, uh, even mm-hmm. if it was on deferred adjudication. <laughs> uh, we are also working on indigent defense reform because we understand that you have people that was born into generational poverty, you know, just as you have people that was born into generational wealth. And when you look at the communities that we focus on, you know, into the third wards and the fifth wards, the sunny sides, you know, you have homes that was born into a world where every day of the week they trying to figure out what do I do next <laughs> mm-hmm. and this is how many of uh, these people their life will probably be for the rest of their life so when you correlate you know poverty and the criminal justice system or fighting a case you know we understand that just because you have nothing you should still have adequate counsel you know, um, and people kind of separate or, you know, uh, when it comes to people having finances to bond out in comparison to not being able to post bail, people look at people that's poor as if they are real criminals and the person that was able to bond out is like, oh, okay. Right. They, it's, it's just, it's different. So indigent defense reform We are also digging into police accountability. You know, um, when you start looking at our communities, that's over-policed, you know, and again, you correlate poverty with uh, crime, law enforcement, how we are treated in our communities, being policed by people that don't even come from our communities, that don't even understand who we are as individuals. Yeah. We're working with police reform. And then... This one has nothing to do with the criminal justice system, but yet have everything to do with our health, you know, with this pandemic COVID that we're in. Uh, Initially, when you look around to see where the COVID 
uh, vaccinations were being distributed, you know, they were in mostly places that was not in the heart of people, in, in the heart of the communities of people that were poor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you start thinking of poverty, you think of no transportation, riding the bus, you know. So we're working on equitable vaccination drives, trying to bring vaccines to communities where people want to get the vaccine, but yet can't make it to the vaccine. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had the <clears throat> I'm in the state of Missouri, you're in, in, in Houston, Texas, but Missouri had the same same situation. They actually sent, uh, initially anyways, they sent the vaccines out to the rural areas. And uh, unless you could afford to drive to one of these rural areas, which could be like over 100 miles away, um, you were stuck. And it took a long time to roll it out into the urban, uh, suburban and urban areas. And what's really bizarre about it, if you look at how the the virus spreads, it the, the closer the people, the more the virus spreads. So, I mean, logic would di- would dictate that you would uh, roll it out first into these areas where people are are you know, the, the, the amount of people per square mile is is the highest. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to believe that that you know there wasn't some sort of a designed to the way this thing was rolled out and, and designed in a way to um, favor certain individuals over others. Um, right. That's just, that's, um, that's not a fact on my part. It's just conjecture. It's just, I, I'm hearing this story and, and not just in Missouri, but <laughs> in a lot of different places. It's a, it's kind of a bizarre thing. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, police accountability as well. Um, One of the concepts that is, uh, and this this kind of triggered a thought in my part here, was uh, one of the movements, uh, again, taking place in Missouri here, is to allow police officers to patrol areas where they do not live. And I always thought that was a bad idea. Um, Can can you expand upon that a little bit more, the the community and and policing and... um, and, you know, getting to know the people that, uh, that are in your, uh, for a policeman, sure. they get to know people that are in their, uh, on their beat or in their district. Sure. Um, so, okay. We can't attack any system first without attacking white supremacy, or at least just bringing it up or talking about it or acknowledging that racism, you know, it's really here. And then you have people who want to be accepted so bad that they would do anything to just be accepted into a world that was not the original lifestyle of them and their people, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about policing, you know, one, you know, it's all there's already a disconnect between the social economic status of individuals. And then you have people who already live in a particular fashion, believe what they believe from what they was taught growing up and how they were raised. And they come from one community to another community that they already look down upon mm-hmm. to police these people that tell them, you know, what they can and can't or should or should not be doing or how things should work. 
when you don't understand, you know, the lifestyle, how people live, uh, you need to know the community that you are policing. You know, if we're going to have law enforcement officers, it need to be somebody that actually know James or Donald from around the corner or the person three blocks away from him that actually have mental health issues, you know, because then you have a sense of caring. You know, you need somebody who actually care about the community to police that community, because if if whomever that's stationed here to police this community, if they don't care about this community or these people in this community, then nothing good can come out of this situation. No, nobody care about the mental issues you have. Nobody care about little James that's 12 years old. That's just acting out right now. Mm -hmm. Nobody care about the little boy that's out here playing with a toy gun. Nobody care. But if you had somebody in the community that actually knew the community and the community knew him, I think it'll create a much safer environment uh, for community members. And I think it'll create a better relationship between community and law enforcement. Well, there's that element of trust, right? If it's somebody from your community and you know him or her, then there's not going to be, uh, it's going to be easier to win their trust, right? Because, you know, we know this person, this person lives, you know, two blocks over or whatever. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. We've, it, it just to kind of, uh, I don't want me to pour fuel on the fire here, but we had an issue here. Um, I pay attention to local politics. My apologies for uh, for kind of pulling into our local political situation here, but we have a new mayor of St. Louis, Deshara Jones, and uh, she is attempting to reform law enforcement in St. Louis, which is, um, you know, it has a kind of a reputation for not being so good. And uh, now you're getting um, state representatives from outside St. Louis area coming into St. Louis and meeting with uh, not people of the community, but meeting with other with with police officers and and uh, other people, but not meeting with the mayor. And then the uh, this legislature uh, goes back to our state capital in Jefferson City and then starts making laws about what cities can and cannot do when it comes to. Uh, modifying their police force. Essentially, they're trying to tie Tashara Jones's hands so that she's powerless to do any sort of reform on the police. And um, I think that's an example of what you're saying. You know, people who aren't even part of the community are coming into the community with their values that they don't have tuned to the people that are in that community and making decisions and making judgments based upon their own their own prejudices. So it's, um, yeah, you're, you're, it's, it doesn't surprise me that you're seeing it uh, there in Houston. Uh, we're seeing it here in the St. Louis area as well. It's, uh, it, it seems to be a um, common thing. Um, I want to tie this back a little bit. Uh, this is the Alliance Party podcast, and we have, the Alliance Party does have um, a, one of our platforms that talks about the, um, extent, about reforming, let me start over, one of our platforms talks about criminal justice reform and there are four points of this criminal justice reform which may or may not apply here but i think a lot of them do 
Uh, the first one is reforming sentencing guidelines to return discretion to judges and eliminate racial disparities in our criminal justice system. Um, Second one is in to ensure prisons are uh, treating the incarcerated humanely and are rewarded for reducing recidivism. Uh, third one is reducing predatory practices and over-reliance on probation and parole systems. And the fourth thing is empowering the incarcerated to successfully integrate back into the community. And that fourth one right there, I actually see as a, a, a pretty significant point because uh, what you're saying is that uh, in your own personal experience, as well as I'm sure people that, that you, you've helped in your community, um, integrating back into the community is difficult to do if you're carrying this, this baggage with you of, in your case, this uh, not being removed from the list. Um, but there's other ways, too, that, you know, if, if, you're a, if you've been in prison, you're an ex-felon or something like that, there's a stigma that follows you around and it's fairly degrading. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, though? I, I'm, I'm more interested, it, not more interested, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing your um, more information from you regarding uh, successfully integrating people back into the community. Of course. So uh, with the uh, successful integration of people, one, we all know that some face a heavier end of the sentencing guidelines than others, you know, due to who we are, where we come from, uh, the finances uh, that what we have in our pocket, our social economic status. And this is our world. You know, we are in a world that is not ours. So when it comes to laws being designed, it wasn't designed for everybody to be the beneficiaries of the law. You know, um, if it was up to me, if I had one wish for the criminal justice system, the courtroom system, the criminal courtroom system or the procedures, I would wish for a blind court system. And this blind court system, which I know this would be something that will probably never happen, but if I had one wish, I would wish for a blind court system. And that blind court system will be a courtroom that never had uh, people, male or female, in a courtroom to fight their case. It'll always be people looking strictly at what happened with no individuals, no descriptions of who, and they just fight the case. The judge wouldn't be able to see who sits in front of their bench. The prosecutor wouldn't be able to see who they are prosecuting. And the court appointed public defender would not be able to see who they are defending. All they would be able to do is read the facts of the case and fight it. And that I'm almost sure will bring equity to the courtroom because nobody will wanna over sentence people that they don't wanna over sentence. Um, mm -hmm. I've been to prison before. right? And when I tell you 
prison is not set up in a way to create an environment to reintegrate people successfully back into society. You know, this is a place of torture. This is a place of, you know, guards come to like personally and particularly come to work to demonize people incarcerated because they feel like they can, they feel like uh, you are less of, they feel like, well, you shouldn't have committed the crime anyway. And, you know, for those that shouldn't be in prison, it's like creating a monster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for people who should or made a mistake, it's like agitating the situation for when they come home. And then the people who actually committed crimes that don't plan on uh, changing, it just makes situations worse. I mean, mm-hmm. in the summertime, they cut the heat on. And in the wintertime, they cut the AC units on. <laughs> wow. That is and torture. That's, that's it is torture. outright torture. Yeah. 200%. And yes, somebody, first of all, I don't even understand how this happened. I don't understand how you can have so many people working for a facility and that don't see anything wrong with this. Or I don't understand how, you know, people just feel like, or or I don't understand why it make people to feel good to be able to humiliate and abuse others. And that's exactly what happened in prison. And yes, somebody needs to actually get down there to the units, check and see what's taking place and fix it. Like, I don't care what prison you go to or what state you go in, most of these prisons, they are inhumane. Inhumane living, you know, the food, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the conditions, and somebody, just like they go to restaurants here to make sure everything is on point, make sure the food is at the proper temperature, make sure the food is uh, servable, (laughs) making sure that the restrooms is good and, you know, the living quarters is good. They should do that same thing with prison. Yeah. But people don't because they are the disposables. Yeah. I was just going to use that word disposables. They're, they're, um, mm-hmm. and, and is it any, to me, the recidivism rate in the U S I, I thought it was higher than what I looked up the statistic recently. I thought it was around 40%. I actually thought it was higher than that. It, it, uh, when you manufacture a monster, you, you know, what do you expect when that person eventually does get free? Um, you know, you, what, you know, you're, you're turning loose that person on society who has no, um, if they've been in prison for any length of time, they're going to have no idea what's going on out in the real world, how to integrate, how to find that job. Um, you know, training and everything is, is, is just completely missing from the resume. So, it's really, really tough. It's, um, it's, it's, um, that's the second way, you know, that, that people are punished when they're turned back into society, you know, they're expected to, uh, integrate and it doesn't happen by magic, right? It has to be a conscious effort and that just isn't happening. You're, uh, the prison oh. outreach part of pure justice, uh, 
is that is that part of the process of uh, helping people to reintegrate back into the community? So, uh, before I get into the prison outreach, can I make one more statement? Sure. sure. And and this is about um, like empowering uh, p returning citizens to be successful uh, when they return back to the community. Mm -hmm. I really wish that there were a federal mandate or maybe even some incentives to put inmates in a position to where when they come home, they could actually find employment and housing without issues. Mm -hmm. There should be no reason anybody should have to fight so hard to find a place to live. Because if you take away housing, you create more dangerous environments because people have no safety net. They have no shelter. And if you force people into homelessness or put people in a position to where they don't know where they're going to sleep daily or don't know how they will actually feed their family. It, it creates environments that could be hostile. Yeah. And if I could ask for anything, I would ask for everybody to ban all boxes, all boxes, all boxes on employment, all boxing on apartments, housing, houses, homes. There should not be a box asking about criminal records because again, signing a plea deal or being found guilty of a charge at trial doesn't actually equate to guilt. It equates to, you know, a possibility. <laughs> yeah. It equates to a possibility of being guilty. It equates to a possibility of signing a plea deal, you know, for a lenient sentence. It equates to trying to actually prove your case without the proper funding to pay for your innocence. Well, yeah, it's like you said in the very beginning, though, it's uh, you believe that the criminal justice system was about the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But given that that is not the case, then um, these boxes that ask for your you know, whether or not you've been incarcerated or anything, the, it, it, would, it assumes truth, justice, and, you know, whatever, uh, whole truth, the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth, but it really doesn't work out that way. So these boxes that you're talking about are, um, on the surface, unfair. It's pure and simple. That's right. Yeah. So now back to your question, you were asking me, um, now, you may have to repeat that question, but I believe you were asking me about our outreach program with the inmates. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So as a former uh, individual that been in the prison, been to jail, been incarcerated, one thing that I understand is that male is one of the most important commodities that any individual incarcerated can have because when we are incarcerated <clears throat> for some we feel as if we are now alone because people have lives people 
are poor. People have to go to work. They have school. They have kids. They have things to take care of, which may take away from the time that they can actually interact with you when you are behind the walls. And while behind the walls, when you have no interaction, all you can think of is nobody have time for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you feel like nobody have time for you and you are incarcerated, once again, it could create a hostile environment inside because people are depressed. Yeah. They feel like, you know, especially when some are watching others receive mail, receive books, have communication with the outside world, and yet you don't know what's going on with your loved ones. <clears throat> so in order to help ease people uh, mind of uh, feeling the loneliness. We have our pen pal where we write people. <clears throat> we just keep in touch with them. We talk to them. We let them know that they are loved, <clears throat> you know, and people do have time for you. But yet, instead of just writing people or writing the individuals that's incarcerated, <clears throat> I like to send books inside for the inmates because it gives them a little bit more to read so instead of just reading a letter you actually have a book that you can flip through throughout the course of a few days that way it gives you something to do instead of just getting in trouble while inside yeah so that's our outreach program so you you encourage people uh not only within your organization but just people interested people to write and you know create pen pals with those on the inside. No, it's it's normally uh, it's it's normally it's it's our members. You know, mm -hmm. like if I reach out to anybody to write somebody uh inside, it'd be like our members. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and you know my one of my number one objectives um when I send my books in, especially for individuals I know live here in Harris County, Houston is for those individuals that I am in contact with, I give them something that they could actually get a chance to know who I am. So with my books, they get a chance, even though we may not have ever met, mm -hmm. they get the opportunity to read me, read about my life and figure out who I am. And I get to share some of my experiences with them. So when they come home, you know, I wish that they would come to an organization that they feel welcomed. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the human soul, right? Needs someone to reach out. I mean, we all need it. And I think one of the, I, I, I've never been in your situation, but I can imagine that one of the most depressing aspects of it is the sense that you don't matter anymore, that you've been forgotten, that, people don't care. And that I think is, uh, one of the most debilitating things. I, I, <clears throat> I actually, um, was, uh, studied, uh, not studied, but I have a good friend who's, who's a minister. And he asked me a question one time. He says, he says, what's the opposite of love? And I said, hate. He says, no, it's indifference. He says, if you really want to hurt someone, act indifferent toward them, that they don't, that they don't matter, you know? And, and I think that, um, 
you know, I guess what I'm getting from this conversation with you is that, is that especially with this outreach program here, it really is to reach out to their soul and say, you know, you're loved. You're, you're not forgotten. That's right. <clears throat> and in the back of every book, uh, ironically, I have a, a definition, my definition of what love is, because I know a lot of people use that word love, mm -hmm. but I really don't believe a lot of people actually understand what it is. And, and what uh, can you tell us what that is? Of course. <clears throat> so when I think of love, I think, you know, like to me, <clears throat> okay, love, of course, is a four letter word, but love is peace. Love is strength. Love is patience. Love is wisdom. Love is feeding the hungry. Love is never turning your back on someone. <clears throat> love is lending a shoulder to cry on. Love is catching people when they fall. Love is respecting everyone's way of thinking even when you don't agree. Love is never giving up on your people. <clears throat> love is true. Love is real. Love is forgiving. Love is Jesus, others, then you. Love is life. Love is light. Love is God. And love is one of the keys to heaven. Hmm. That's beautiful. You mentioned uh, you put this in the back of your of, of all your books, that your definition Every of love. Every last one of them. So we've uh, we've introduced uh, at the at the top of the uh, podcast here. We talked about the books that you've written. Can you um, tell us a little bit more about them? Uh, the first one, I think, that is Stolen Identity. Uh, when was that written? And um, and and is there a story after Stolen Identity? Yeah. So <clears throat> Stolen Identity is the first book that I've written. Um, Stolen Identity. You know, most people think of like a fraud or a credit card theft, a social security card theft. <clears throat> but I actually talk about how the criminal justice system, the judicial system define us as individuals and they tell us who we are as an individual. And once they define us, we end up conforming to the system because people tell us where we can't work, where we can't live, what we can't do and what they will not pay us. <clears throat> so instead of allowing a system to define me with one of the worst charges in life that anybody can have that I should not have. <clears throat> I define myself and I speak my truth. And I tell people how easy it is to get caught up in a situation just like mine. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you will actually see an abstract photo on the front, on the front <clears throat> which is me faded out. And I'm actually replaced uh, with the prison system, with my prison number at the bottom of uh, Stolen Identity. Now, when I wrote this book, <clears throat> I was going through a lot. Uh, and everything that I'm talking about in the book, I was still like feeling the effects of everything heavily. And I didn't know how certain things would end for me. So I left the book off on a cliffhanger but then when I realized how everything was working out or was going to work out for me, I had to give the book closure because a lot of people was calling me and saying, hey, man, did you really leave that book off like that? How are you going to do that? I want to know what happened. How'd you get from point A to point B? How'd you go from prison? But I'm looking, you ended the book in prison, but I'm looking at you right now. You running a whole organization. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I had to come back with the domino effect. <clears throat> and the domino effect, you know, was just a book of chain of events <clears throat> that impacted me as an individual in certain ways that transformed me as an individual and actually gave me purpose. Um, I did realize one of the things that had happened to me that could have been the worst thing, the thing that people used to beat me down, break me and tear me down was the best thing that ever happened to me. So I came with the domino effect <clears throat> to show people and tell people how I actually got from point A to point B. Now, you have a lot of people who support the organization. They support the work we do. They know who I am. They know about my story and my case. And they purchase my books, but yet they may not be readers. Even though I, stru I structured both of these books in short paragraph, easy read form, that way, if you're not really into reading, <clears throat> you can get through the book. If you want to get back into reading, you can. And if you're an avid reader, it's like a breeze through. But to even simplify it even more, <clears throat> I, my my uh, fourth book, and I'm, I'm skipping the third one now, but my fourth book was called Roshan and the Camp Click. And it's pretty much a book that's inspired by a true story, but it's in graphic form and it's inspired by stolen identity. So for people who <clears throat> may not have a lot of time to read because they work in 50 and 60 hours or whatever the case may be, if they want to actually dig off or get a start into my book or share a book with somebody that's young that may not have started reading yet, I put it in the graphic form, okay. which is Roshan and the Camp Click. <clears throat> uh, C-A-M-P, what does that stand for again? Yeah, that's uh, Critically Acclaimed Major Players. Okay. Uh, when I was a kid, that is what we used to call ourselves. That was the little group we were in. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And then my third book, which I'm going to tell you about last, is called Open Your Mind. And Open Your Mind <clears throat> is written in a way to push people beyond the traditional norms of their ways of thinking. You know, it's to push you beyond, you know, what's regular, you know, it, it's a book written to make you think. Okay. So the book can be very controversial. And I know it. But I talk about the things that I believe is used to control humans, which is education, religion, and politics mixed with fear. Mm -hmm. I'm going to mm -hmm. read that and one. I also, I also challenge anybody that reads this book to not just read my words and take it as is, but I challenge them to do their own research and figure it out for themselves. Okay. Well, I'm definitely going to pick up that book because that, uh, that seems to echo a lot of the thoughts I've had uh, since I got involved with the Alliance Party, actually even before I got involved with the Alliance Party and started doing podcasts and doing all kinds of research. That um, seems to echo a lot. The subtitle of that book is called Challenging Conventional Thought. So that's a good, that's a good lead in like that <laughs> okay um now uh we're getting up toward the end of the uh end of our time here i wanted to uh, ask you quickly uh what can our listening audience do today to help the cause at pure justice so 
we are based in Houston, Texas, Harris County, and we can't do anything without funding. Everything we do needs funding. So if you are not in Houston, Harris County and want to get involved or help in any kind of way, you can actually go to our website, www.purejustice.org. That's P-U-R-E-J-U-S-T-I-C-E dot O-R-G and donate whatever you can, whatever you want, everything that I spoke about in the beginning of the interview, that's what your funds will go towards. It'll go towards whatever we're working on. Um, if you are in Harris County, Houston, you can also go to the website. You can donate because once again, we cannot do anything without funds. <clears throat> but if you are here and if you want to put your boots in the ground where it matter, you can go to our website, purejustice.org. You can send me a message straight from the website because we can't do it alone and we would love to have you. Volunteers are always welcome. That's right. Yeah. Good. We've been talking with Roshan Evans, wrongfully convicted felon, organizing director, in, inmate liaison, and community outreach coordinator at Peer Justice, author of several books, and student bound for law school. Roshan, thank you very much for dropping by this evening and talking about Pure Justice. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. The Alliance Party is all one word. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also, see our Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.